The story that I'm about to read is a very familiar one. There will be a painting that I'll, I'll show, but this is the window that used to depict this story, and it's not easy to figure out all the symbols, but what looks like the reverse P is a row, and this, what looks like an X, is the Greek letter chi. It's chi rho, the first two letters of Christ in the name Christos in Greek. If you ever see the X, it's really a chi, or the reverse P in um, windows or anywhere, it's always a symbol of Christ. And here, you can sort of see is the prow of a ship, and the waves are curling because there's a storm that is blown in, but then, then the waves turn quiet. This is the way it was depicted in one of our windows 60 years ago. In a moment in the sermon, you will see uh, one of the great art works of art depicting this story as well. But Luke tells it in this way. One day Jesus got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they put out. And while they were sailing, he fell asleep. A windstorm swept down on the lake, and the boat was filling with water, and they were in danger. They went to Jesus and woke him up, shouting, Master, Master, we are dying. And he woke up and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. They ceased, and there was a great calm. And Jesus said to them, Where is your faith? They were afraid and amazed. And said to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water? And they obey him. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be offered humbly and faithfully. Amen. I'll come to the painting in a moment. But it's the window. But it's the calming of the seas. The Storm on the Sea by Rembrandt. But we'll come back to it in a moment. Now, truth be told, you have to know the truth. It's an exaggeration. It's an exaggeration to call it a sea. It's nothing more than a modest lake. It's about two miles across, three miles long. You can see easily to the shore on either side. What I'm talking about with such an exaggeration is to call it the Sea of Galilee. Because to call it a sea is just plain poetic license. But maybe, maybe they had to insert that sort of glimmer of fear because in this story, the disciples, as we heard, are frightened. They're frightened. I mean, think about it. Really, some of these disciples were fishermen. I mean, rugged guys who had spent their lives on the Sea of Galilee. They'd seen more than their fair share of squalls blow into that lake. I mean, they were experienced sailors. Why would they be frightened by a storm on basically a small lake that a strong swimmer could cross in an hour? Well, Luke unfolds the story for us because Jesus and the disciples are going to cross to the other side of sea, to the Sea of Galilee, and they're going to do it because they need a break. They need a respite from the clamorous crowds and the oppressive human need that was pressing in on them all the 
time. Jesus apparently is exhausted. Even our Savior can become weary. In the Gospel of Mark's version of this, it's even a little bit sweeter. It says that Jesus fell asleep with his head on a pillow. And the peace and the quiet of blissful rest is broken by the chaos, right? A storm seems to awaken the skies, begins to toss the boat from side to side, but it doesn't awaken Jesus. In the stories in the Gospels where it appears, Jesus, despite the storm, continues to find the restorative rest of the righteous. It's Rembrandt who picks up the story and carries us into it. You see on this small lake enormous waves that are leaping into the boat because Rembrandt, Rembrandt wants you and I to know that it's clear the disciples are in peril. It doesn't matter if they were rugged fishermen who'd seen their share of squalls. This is frightening. It may be a modest lake. It's a monster storm. In many of Rembrandt's paintings, he uses light from an unseen source to direct our eyes and our hearts. Rembrandt concentrates our attention on the fear in the disciples' hearts. Unfortunately, it didn't um, come through as nicely as I hoped because there are two sides to this. There is the light of some of the disciples and then in the dark, right in the middle, sitting is Jesus, calmly, but just awakened. Rembrandt's gift as a painter, which was remarkable, I mean, he's one of the masters, was to be able to direct our attention with the use of that unseen light. And in most of his paintings that include Jesus, Jesus is always placed in the center of the light. But not here. It's as if the main character of this story is the storm. Now, it's difficult to make out, but Catherine, you have to tell, I showed you this painting earlier in the week. There is in the very front, one of the disciples, like this, hanging over the side, about to be sick to his stomach. He's seasick. He's hanging over the front of the bow. And then there is, of course, the calm of Jesus in the midst, in the deep, in the deep of the shadows of his own dreams. But then, unfortunately, it doesn't come through, but just in the, in the center lower, just as it begins, he's half in the light, half in the dark. It looks like the, his shoulder is in blue. He's actually looking out at us. He's looking out at us, and this is what he's doing. It's Rembrandt. It's his self-portrait. Rembrandt puts himself in the middle of the chaos and fear of the storm and also on the cusp of the hope and calm of Jesus. And Rembrandt in the picture is looking at you. He's looking at the viewer as if you know how this feels. You're in this boat too. We're along for the fearsome ride. And then the question that Jesus asked, 
after he is awakened and the seas are calm, he says to you and to me, where is your faith? Where is your faith? A friend describes Jesus' question as surely one of exasperation. He assumes that Jesus sounds indignant when he asks us, where is your faith? Why would he be indignant? But this is where my friend is particularly helpful. He suggests that he thinks what Jesus experiences, when Jesus experiences, experiences the disciples' lack of faith, he feels that as almost a denigration and a diminishment of his relationship with them. The story and the question, where is your faith, are about the inextricable connection, the bound together nature of faith, trust, and relationship. Think about it. If you say, I have faith in some other person, you probably mean a lot of things when you say that. I have faith in that person. I trust her. I rely on him. I love her. I depend on him. Faith, because it is trust, is bounded by the language of relationship. Jesus obviously feels that he had earned the trust of the disciples. He's not simply frustrated with their lack of faith in a storm. He's hurt by it. It's as if he is saying, after all we've been through, after all we've talked about, after all you've observed in me, you don't trust me when the times are challenging? William Sloan Coffin once wrote that we use the words belief and faith as if they are synonymous, but belief and faith are not. They're different. Faith isn't believing without proof, but faith is trusting without reservation. Faith is trusting without reservation. I mean, think about it this way. You've been to the circus, and, and you see the high wire act, and the high wire walker is amazing. He's walked back and forth, and then he's ridden a bicycle back and forth, and you come to believe, oh my gosh, he could do anything. And then the ringmaster addresses all of us, ladies and gentlemen, how many of you believe that this daring man who has ridden that bicycle back and forth can now ride that bicycle back and forth across the tightrope with someone on his shoulders and arms shoot up? Of course he can do it. Of course you can do it. And very well, says the ringmaster, who then will volunteer to sit on his shoulders? The difference between belief and faith is that faith is not about believing certain things are true, but faith is about putting your trust in someone. Jesus never, never promises to protect us from the storms of life, but rather he implores us to exhibit the kind of trust in God that inspired the Apostle Paul to compose one of the great affirmations of trust in our faith. Paul writes, I am convinced he could have begun, I trust 
that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's words of trust like those that remind me of the witness of my dear friend and a former pastor of ours, the Reverend Catherine Price. If you remember, Catherine served here about six years, but she knew this church well as she had grown up in it, having been raised as a daughter of this congregation. Some of you remember that Catherine died of cancer over 10 years ago. But what I lift up for you about her astonishing ministry was her courage, yes, but her trust in the midst of the storm. Catherine knew, the doctors knew, we knew, that her time on earth was growing quite limited. And she had but months to live. And it was as if the water was coming in over the sides of the boat, and the storm was frightening. But Catherine taught us that faith is a verb. In a sermon, she reminded us once that even though there is no verb form of faith in English, for instance, we cannot say, I faith, you faith, we faith, but she reminded us, in reality, faith, properly understood, is indeed a verb. It is something, not that we have, but that we do. If English would allow, we would do well to say something like this, you know, I faith as often as I can. I wish I could faith more. In fact, I'm working on faithing in God in all that I do. But reminding us that faith is something that we do, that it is a verb, might very well have been why Catherine Price could say with such conviction to me once, you know, Rich, I have no, no idea how much more time God has allotted me but I do know that I want to give as much glory to God for however long that may be. It's the least I can do for the God who loves me so. It'll be okay. I think about that now and again and realize that there really are two ways to face the fear of the storm. One way is to sail into the storm and pretend you're whistling past the fear. And simply saying things like, the surgery will go fine, it has to, the, the estrangement for my loved one will come to an end, the storm, it will subside, the worst can't happen. But you know what? That kind of assurance is never ours to give. So the other way to face the storm is how Catherine did to say that if I hold fast to the love of God, no matter what happens, I trust, I faith, that God will remain and never let me go.